well, as I said, by a, a little bit of anticipation, uh, we're thinking about the uh, wise men. And you, uh, you might want to have that uh, reading from Matthew chapter 2 uh, in front of you. Uh, and for a particular reason uh, this morning, because, of course, so much of our image of uh, Christmas is created from images, not least the image of the uh, stable scene, um, which I, I think, if I remember rightly, comes for us from St. Francis of Assisi, who kind of crammed the stable um, with as many images uh, as he could of Christmas. So he put the uh, shepherds there and the wise men there. And having the shepherds and wise men together at the scene is part of the way we think of Christmas. Um, but there's no evidence at all that it ever happened. In that there's evidence that the shepherds were there, uh, but there's no evidence, it's not that it's, there's, no, there's no sense that the wise men were there at the same time. They probably came along a little later, otherwise why would Herod have gone to the trouble of killing all the boys under, under uh, two? They probably came a little later. Uh, and we have a picture that's built up of what, what it all means uh, by often saying, well, isn't that fantastic? Because at the manger, you get the shepherds, the lowly, and, and we could all preach the sermon on the shepherds. We've heard about the shepherds. Um, but you also get you know, the great and the good, the kings, um, and we could all preach that sermon too. But what if they're actually saying the same thing, it's, if it's not that kind of contrast at all? What if what Matthew has to say in his gospel in chapter 2 about uh, the, the Magi is actually making the same point as Luke is making with the shepherds uh, in his gospel uh, uh, about that earlier moment when the shepherds first came? So I want to ask, um, uh, who are the wise men and what it is to be wise? Um, I, I think it was three years ago that I um, failed in my, um, not, not quite promise to myself, but in my hope before myself, um, at the age of about 25, 26, that I would never have to sit another exam in my life. It's, an, it's a, uh, something that lots of us will have said to, each, uh, to ourselves at some point, but I had to sit an exam um, about three years ago at the age of 55, and I thought, well, it'd be quite fun to find out um, who's, the, who's the person who sat an exam at the oldest uh, among us. Um, anyone, can anyone beat 55? Uh, anyone sat an exam at an age old and, oh, yes, I wondered if, uh, yes, I wondered if it might be financial or medical people that, that might, might, dare I ask how old it, you were? Obviously, it was a long time ago, and you're, you're, you know, you're much, you know, that, that was in your youth. But go on, uh, Lewis. 61. Okay, anyone, can anyone be 61? No? Okay, so you are officially our oldest examinee then. Uh, so you must be very wise indeed. Um, and you will know, because you've been to those services, where that awkward moment of 
um, explaining that the Magi are not kings because you've got children and we know we're all going to sing We Three Kings of Orient Are in a couple of minutes. And you've all sat through that moment of going, well, we know they weren't probably kings, so how is he going to explain this? Um, They may have come from kings and they were astrologers. So you know that they weren't kings, despite the song, Uh, but we needed... How did they become kings? We needed them to become kings once the church had moved from being an organisation of slaves, largely, and the lower classes, to being an organisation of the upper classes and of uh, royalty, because it was very important for the church to be able to say to its royal members, by the way, uh, the royals were there at the beginning bowing the knee to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It was important for the church to be able to say that, but it only became important once the church had kind of moved up through uh, society. So we know they're not kings, but they may have come from kings. What about wise men? Well, yes and no. They were a class of people that would have been thought of back home as being wise men. But they would not have seemed that way to Jewish people. Imagine if... Uh, you know that, um, that story in the Gospels where uh, Jesus sends the demons into a herd of pigs and they all rush off the um, uh, cliff and uh, everyone's very upset with him because he just destroyed a nice little industry. Uh, and there's, there's always a, an issue goes on around, well, well, what side of the lake was this? Um, was this the side of the lake where it would have been okay to keep pigs, or was it not? Actually, even on the other side of the lake, it probably still wasn't okay to keep pigs, but they were keeping pigs anyway. Now, imagine if at the scene um, you had had uh, shepherds of sheep, but also shepherds of pigs. You would have known enough about Judaism to know that there was something uneasy about this picture. And yet, that's exactly what is going on here in many ways. Because astrology was completely forbidden to Jewish people. They would look down on astrologers in exactly the same way that they would look down on pig herders, because eating pigs was forbidden. But what would happen when Jewish people encountered Matthew's story here about Magi? And he deliberately, I'm sure, uses their own word for themselves, because there's no word that exactly translates what they are. Jewish people would have known that these men, who we don't think of as wise, are thought of as wise back where they come from, but we don't think they're wise, so we won't call them wise, we'll call them by their other name, Magi. Because the point is that the unwise are wise enough to know the prophecies of a king being born over the Jews. Perhaps all the Jews themselves were too close to the issue and could never have spotted that that prophecy might actually happen, the prophecy uh, from Micah about Bethlehem. The point is the usual topsy-turvy one that you get in Matthew's Gospel. These men, who are not wise by the standards of those for whom Matthew is writing, are the ones who get the point of the prophecy while everyone else around them misses it completely. Or, like Herod, is alerted to it 
only in order to feel threatened. Notice that they do not bring gifts to Herod. They know that he is not the one they are looking for. So it's much more in the, in the category uh, that you get in Matthew's Gospel of, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they shall be filled, topsy-turvy. Or the parables in which nothing is ever what it seems. Matthew knows that the kingdom of God is topsy-turvy over against the ways of this world. These men are called wise, but they are not wise. They're actually quite dim, according to Jewish standards. Uh, they're certainly unclean. But in this case, they turn out to be wiser than anyone else at the scene because only they actually understand what the word of God written in the past has to say. And they do stand for all the nations who will one day come to worship the king who is not king of the Jews only, but king of kings and lord of lords, lord of all. Which means that we ourselves, and this is the point of it, do not have to be wise or to be called wise in order to understand Jesus. We may have heard about Jesus at school, but we don't need to learn him at school. He's the most important person that ever lived. We don't have to sit exams about him. Isn't that odd? Excuse me. (coughs) Um, Peter Jameson, I wonder if you could go and get me a glass of water. I'd be very grateful. Peter, thank you. Um... Knowing Jesus is first about the heart and about guts more than it is about the head. Knowing Jesus means worshipping someone who isn't like anything else we might worship if we were left to ourselves. Who might we worship if not Jesus? I was very struck by an article I read on the train in November by Matt Ridley, a journalist of the Times. He pointed out that actually, despite all the fuss around uh, ISIS and Islamic State and uh, the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, and all about the extremities of uh, uh, fundamentalist Islam, actually the biggest forces at work in the uh, Middle East are the ones that uh, persuade us in the West towards skepticism materialism, and rationalism. And actually, if you look at what he has to say, um, it's still online uh, uh, from the Times, um, and that does hold for most of life. Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you. It does hold for most of life. It's true as an analysis of what's going on in the Middle East. It's certainly true in what's going on as an analysis of the West. But this is a very interesting time to look at that question more precisely. Because Christmas, even at its most popular and tacky, is still a very popular protest from those who retain the sense that those isms, scepticism, materialism, and rationalism, are not quite enough. At the very least, Christmas celebrates a birth Well, scepticism, rationalism, and materialism have nothing to say to such a moment. There's a mystery that they cannot encompass. And to the extent that it's true for a birth, how much more for a death? Another journalist pointed out recently 
that humanist funerals, which are increasing in their popularity, with their recitation of the virtues of the deceased, may be very well for most people, but for a really hardened criminal, only a Christian funeral will do, because only Christian words are strong enough to resist the corrosion of evil. At both ends of life, scepticism, materialism, and rationalism fail in their power. And what's going on may not so much be a rise in those isms as a closing of the heart and memory to the realities of birth and death that surround us. When we worship Jesus who is material, but not materialistic, rational, but not rationalistic, himself often sceptical, but never cynical, we are saying that this world is not enough. But those wise men were doing more than that. Their worship consisted in this, that they brought in their treasures. Gold, because he was a king. Who are the false kings that surround us? Well, of course, if we think about those in political power, we don't have to search for long before we find those politicians who, uh, uh, while telling religious leaders to stay out of politics, seem quite willing themselves to enter into the world of religion. David Cameron this week proclaimed that Christian values are peace, mercy, goodwill, and hope. Well, I hope that up and down the land, Muslims are incandescent that those good things have been named as Christian when Muslims believe in them just as much. There is one thing distinctive about Christian values, and it is that Jesus Christ is Lord. But somehow that didn't make it onto the list. They bring frankincense for a priest. Who are the false priests and religions of our day? They are, of course, not the ones that, masquer- that, that dress up as religions, but the ones that we simply absorb with the air that we breathe. They are the, the, the water in which we swim, and like a fish, we don't even think about the water. Spend an evening watching television. I try to avoid doing that, but occasionally I force myself to do it, just to, just to catch a sense of, of what are the religions of our day. I suggest, and there's, you could have long arguments about this, but that sense that I am what I choose to be today, and no one has a right to tell me otherwise that kind of sense of my rights as an individual are perhaps the most dominant religion of our time. They bring gold for a king, frankincense for a priest, and myrrh for what precisely? Well, we all know that it it was to anoint Jesus for burial. But that doesn't seem to fit so precisely. There are three great offices of Jesus, echoing the Old Testament offices of king and priest and prophet. But of course, Jesus is himself the one who points out that Jerusalem kills the prophets who speak of God. Why do we think that we are different? We will listen to every voice but God's. How much of our own Christmas that we've just 
celebrated, of those markers for Christmas that Sue has just taken us through in our prayers, how many of those actually spring from an early 21st century culture of advertising and uh, proclaimed need for stuff? Or within the church for the proclaimed need for family, nuclear family, to be together? Christians can suffer from doing what everyone else does but adding a bit of Jesus on top, like putting a little piece of holly on top of a Christmas pudding. What would a truly radical Christmas look like for any family represented here today? They bring their treasures. Those men who are unwise and unclean according to Jewish law nonetheless bring the best that they have. And it puts a sharp question to us. Who do we normally worship? What's the water that we swim in? Well, correct it so that it is Jesus and Jesus only. Who normally gets our treasure? Change it so that it's Jesus And may all our Christmases finally be bright. Let's pray. Almighty God, we've just come through the start of that extraordinary season. And we thank you for these reminders in Scripture that the outsiders, ethnically, nationally, religiously, can get it right when those on the inside do not. Defend us this season from Christian smugness. open our eyes and our hearts to the need around us. And change our worship so that it is more truly focused on Jesus, King of kings and Lord of all, and on nothing else. For we ask it in his name. Amen.